we're still on the part on psychical individuation, chapter two of that part, I believe, uh, chapter three, sorry, of that part. And then we're starting section four of that chapter. So we're on page 304 of the translation for those following along. So last time we read uh, section three, which had to do with the notion of bisubstantialism. So the, the idea that the body and the soul or the mind are two separate uh, distinct substances. And of course, Simondon uh, criticizes this notion effectively on the ground that it, it, it ignores the genesis of the person, of, of, of the individual. It treats the, the body and the soul as uh, entities that um, have no genesis, that have no, um, that, that don't undergo individuation. They're already individuated. This this last section had a few sort of digressions that were interesting, but not like in that direct uh, line of argument. But the one of them had to do with immanence versus transcendence. And I think we'll see more on that today. So in relation to the idea of whether there's something in the, the human being uh, as a person that is uh, transcendent, uh, that is sort of uh, non-natural or or whether, on the other hand, everything in the human being can be uh, explained as arising from experience or, or from uh, the natural reality in some, uh, in some sense of that term. Uh, and, and so Simondon, uh, as usual, is going to question this sort of dichotomy between imminence and transcendence, and he's going to argue that the individuated reality, so the human being as an already individuated entity, uh, is not the the complete reality it's not it doesn't contain everything that goes into making up that being so there's the being prior to individuation uh, and then they're out of that pre-individuated being or unindividuated being there arises an individual as a, a portion or only a, a a part of that reality uh, and so the only the individual and its associated milieu together make up the complete reality. So when we talk about uh, imminence versus transcendence, they're both partly right or both partly wrong uh, in the sense that the, the human individual as, the, as an individuated being can't account for everything in human reality or, or the reality of the human being because that individual is always coordinate with an associated milieu uh, and only together with that milieu makes up the complete reality. But at the same time, that transcendent or, or that aspect that goes beyond the already individuated human being is not itself something that has the character of an individual. So the idea of a personal divinity, um, so something that would itself have the character of uh, an individual of individuality is not something that um, that we can use uh, in in this connection. So instead of starting from already individuated beings and then trying to account for human reality in terms of imminence or transcendence, we have to uh, account for human reality in terms of its genesis and uh, the process of individuation. Oh, and maybe one last bit about last time. Um, we also saw the last little bit um, had a, a sort of a piece on animals as sort of purely corporeal or the, this representation of animals as purely corporeal as opposed to the human in which the psychical reality would sort of subordinate the somatic or, or corporeal reality. And Simondon points to the fact that 
in animals, you have this, there is instinctive behavior, but there's also behavior that organizes, uh, that solves problems. There's not just a, a fixed repertoire of behaviors that are triggered by some sort of stimulus as, uh, you know, some representations of animal behavior would, would put it, but instead you have a, a sort of problem-solving capacity that requires uh, something like a creativity in animals and and so we can't we can't sort of deny a, a psychical reality to animals as well um, and we can't uh, at the same time define the the human as something that goes beyond animal reality in that sense okay so let's start on uh, today's reading um, so I'll read um, I think this is one of these oh actually no there's a couple paragraphs here so um, um, so we're starting at page 304 at the uh, section break there. Right, so I'll read a page or so and then we'll go around. Insufficiency of the notion of adaptation to explain psychical individuation. One of the most characteristic traits of modern psychology and psychopathology is that they contain an implicit sociology that is inherent particularly to the normativity of their judgments. Certainly these disciplines claim not to be normative and want to be merely objective. They are objective, no doubt, but from the moment that the necessity of the distinction between the normal and the pathological appears, from the moment that it is merely necessary to determine a hierarchy by classifying behaviors or states according to a scale of levels, normativity once again arises. If we define this implicit normativity, it is not to argue against it in this part of our study, but because it obscures a whole aspect of the representation of the individual. If dynamics is included in the implicit normativity, one will be able to construct a psychological theory of the individual within which it will seem that no dynamics is presupposed. In fact, this dynamics is present in implicit normativity, but it does not appear as a dynamics inherent to the object studied. If we analyze the complete content of the dynamic notions employed by modern psychology, such as the normal and the pathological, high-level states and low-level states, states of elevated psychical tension and states of low psychical tension, we would find that this implicit normativity conceals a sociology and even a sociotechnics that do not belong to the explicit foundations of psychology. Perhaps this remark would even be valid for the psycho psychological doctrines of previous centuries, since they seem, seem to be exempt from any theory of society and because sociology had not been constituted as an autonomous discipline. In Mabranche, for example, we can discover a certain conception of human freedom and of individual responsibility founded on the fact that each being has a movement to always go further. In Mendebiran, the hierarchy of three lives supposes a certain representation of inter-individual relation. Lastly, even in the work of Rousseau, whom we are taking as a general example of the authors that sought to construct a doctrine of the individual grasped in his solitude, virtue and consciousness involve an implicit presence of relation. But this incapacity of psychological thought facing the analysis of its presuppositions is particularly notable in the most recent developments of this discipline. As an example, if we take the address of Dr. Kuby to the 1949 Macy Conference of Cybernetics, we find that the author legitimizes his distinction of the normal and the pathological and in individual behavior through the criterion of adaptation. This is indicated by the title of his study, The Neurotic Potential and Human Adaptation. He attempts to show that a behavior governed by neuropathic forces and presenting certain analogies with, a normal, with normal behavior is ultimately exposed due to the fact that the subject cannot be satisfied with any of his successes. Neuropathic potentials are distinguished from normal forces by the continual disadaptation of the subject that they animate. This subject is neither happy nor satisfied. 
even if seen from outside, his behavior seems to involve success. As the author states, this is because there is an immense gap between the, the goal pursued by the neuropathic potentials and the conscious goal that the subject seeks and can effectively attain. When the overarching and consciously sought goal is finally reached, the subject understands that he has been the victim of an illusion and that this is not yet his true goal. He is not satisfied and he sees that he never will be. This may then be the moment of despair, which is incomprehensible for someone who sees from outside this drama of the neuropathic quest. At the height of their career, an engineer or a writer commits suicide without any apparent cause. Their success was not a veritable adaptation. At least for a time, neurotics often seem to excel normal subjects. This is because they work and act under the influence of neuropathic potentials. But sooner or later, neurosis manifests. Dr. Kuby cites several cases to illustrate his thesis, particularly the case of a man who, during World War II, was awarded several military medals for his heroic conduct and his remarkable aggressiveness. He had managed to leave the desk job to which he was assigned in order to participate to partake in battle in an extremely courageous way. However, after the end of the war, this, this man's severe neurosis manifested and forced him to seek psychiatric help. Similarly, according to the author, one often finds in universities certain campus heroes, an expression whose literal meaning is heroes of the university grounds. But this expression has a value similar to phrases like heroes of the honor roll or heroes of the court of honor. These heroes are neurotics who mask their inability to adapt by excelling in the intellectual or athletic domain and who find in the laurels they receive a provisional means of ensuring their in integration into the society in which they live. Later on, neurosis. Um, so we can stop here for, for discussion. Um, so here the, the problem that he's setting out or the, the question to, to uh, discuss is this notion of adaptation in psychology um, and, and in psychopathology. So the idea that there are certain states of an individual in which they're adapted to external reality, to uh, their environment, uh, and then there are other states in which they're not adapted. Um, and this, this notion of adaptation already presupposes um, a certain representation of uh, social organization or uh, of what um, what a relationship between individuals consists in. Uh, namely, it, it's already indicating that um, the social relationship should be understood in terms of something like uh, a pre-existing reality to which the individual has to adapt. Um, and, and this um, this soci sociological presupposition is not explicitly stated, so psychologists just use terms like um, normal and pathological or adaptive and, and non-adaptive behavior, and they don't necessarily um, uh, make explicit what sociological uh, principles they're, they're presupposing. Uh, and so this, um, this already applies to um, authors from before sociology as a discipline was established. So um, you can look at um, authors from the 18th or, or 19th century, um, and you can, or, or even 17th century in the case of Malbranche, um, there you have um, some sort of presupposition of what social relationship consists in already implicit in their explanations of what the individual um, as a, as a 
as a psychological reality um, consists in. And then um, Simondon turns to the example of um, this author, Dr. Kubi, who I don't know anything about, um, but um, taken from the Macy Conference of Cybernetics uh, in 1949. Um, and this, uh, the Macy Conference series, the, the, the Macy Conferences were sort of the foundational conferences for cybernetics as a discipline. Um, uh, they, uh, it was at these conferences that the term cybernetics itself was sort of um, popularized and uh, established. Um, and uh, the idea was to just sort of bring together scientists in a number of different fields, like um, uh, mathematicians, um, uh, computer engineers in the early stages of, of the development of computers, um, physiologists, uh, psychiatrists, etc. Um, bring them all together and um, develop these sort of general concepts of uh, communication and control um, that would apply across all these different fields. And so here we um, we have this uh, Dr. Kubi uh, presenting an idea of um, a sort of uh, misadaptation. Uh, so there would be certain uh, instances where these people um, who appear to be, from an, an external perspective, people appear to be adapted, like they're, they're successful in their career or in whatever other um, circumstances you want to look at externally, but um, in, in a, from a sort of internal point of view, they never feel um, that sense of, of accomplishment or of um, adaptation. And um, the hypothesis here is that this lack of adaptation, this neuropathic um, uh, potential um, is, is sort of what's driving their um, successes. So they, they sort of seek to compensate for this lack of adaptation by um, by their achievements. Uh, and so someone may externally have all these um, um, achievements and seem to be successful in a lot of ways um, precisely because they're um, trying to compensate for the lack of internal adaptation. And we'll, we'll um, continue, we'll see more about this example in the next few paragraphs. Okay, so let's go on to the next um, page or so, if someone else would like to read from nevertheless this criteria. Uh, I can read. Nevertheless, this criterion of adaptation or adaptability, which is taken by Dr. Kubi as a principle of distinction between the normal and the pathological, presents a very serious possibility of confusion. Should adaptation be grasped in the relation of the individual to the group or in the relation of the individual to himself? At the beginning of his address, Dr. Kubi establishes the nature of the logical and physical necessity of this criterion by assimilating it with the law of gravitation. It would be absurd to ask if any norm whatsoever requires matter to attract matter, for without this natural law, the world would not exist. Similarly, it is absurd to ask whether there is a norm that requires man to adapt to society. The very fact that the human world exists proves the existence of this norm of adaptation. It is a norm because it is a law that expresses the existence of a human world whose condition of possibility it is.
However, this analogy is much too condensed to be considered a principle. Indeed, the physical world is not merely constituted by neutral matter, i.e. each particle attracting all the others and being attracted by them according to Newton's law. There are also electrical charges that polarize matter and make particles capable of a mutual repulsion stronger than Newtonian attraction, as can be seen currently in certain stable or unstable plasmas. There is a considerable difference between a field like gravita the gravitational field and a field like an electrical field or a magnetic field. The latter actually involve a polarity, whereas the field of gravity does not. Finally, over and above electrical charges, be they associated with matter or not, and appearing as an electron or ion, potential or potential well, there is electromagnetic radiation, uh, which can be grasped in all the degrees of the vast domain of transductivity it constitutes. If the physical universe were only constituted by neutral particles without polarity and without radiation, its properties would be totally different from what they are. The problem of physical individuality certainly would not be posed with such acuteness. There would then be no explanation for why a corpuscle like an electron, which repels other electrons with a force inversely proportionate to the distance between the corpuscles, is not dislocated by forces that should, by virtue of the preceding law, tend to dissociate its parts from one another. If the individual unity of the electron remains despite this law, this is because a reality distinct from the electron, sorry, distinct from attraction at a distance and from repulsion at a distance enters into play on the level of the particle. The physical individual cannot be treated according to laws derived from the study of inter-individual relations. Since if the individual exists, this is because the laws whose action is not observable on the individual level become predominant on the individual level. Uh, if there were only one type of relation, the individual would not be isolated from the whole into which it is integrated. In the same way, in psychology, the normality of the individual cannot be defined by a law that expresses the coherence of the world. Because if this law alone were valid, there would be no individual reality, and thus no problem of normality could intervene. Uh, should I just finish this? Just one more paragraph. Uh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Furthermore, in the description of the neuroses he recounted, Dr. Kuvi indeed shows that the adaptation in question, which defines normality, is an adaptation of the individual not only to the human world, but also to himself. Because in formal terms, success, achievement, and enviable and envied situation and honorable position and wealth do not constitute satisfaction, without which there is no adaptation. However, a law comparable to that of gravitation in the physical world cannot determine in the human world whether a specific role suits a specific personality. The neurotic is one for whom no role is suitable and who therefore suffers from a constant dis disadaptation not between his role in society, but between himself and his role in society. One can be disadapted without being neurotic and neurotic without being disadapted because the compatibility or incompatibility in the relation of the individual to himself is not determined by the law of inter-individual relation. An implicit sociology is not a guarantee of objectivity in psychology. It only keeps us from posing the problem of the relation of the individual to himself. Nevertheless, this question is posed on the level of physical thought itself, which is posed all the more in psychology due to the higher level of organization and the greater complexity of the individual within this domain. I like this point that you can't, if it were the case that there was this kind of necessary law of inter-individual relation that 
you know, and, and if I guess gravity and the, the way that Dr. Kuvi uses it was a valid analogy, then the question of normativity wouldn't even come up because you would really just have the group. And so it, it wouldn't even make sense to talk about the relation of the individual to the group. Yeah, exactly. So um, even in the case of physical individuality, which is obviously much simpler than psychological individuality, um, in the case of physical individuality, we can only speak of a physical individual insofar as that individual is not purely governed by the same laws um, that, that um, constitute the relationships between those individuals. Uh, because if, if there was just one universal law that covered uh, everything, uh, then um, there would be no distinct reality of the individual. Uh, it's only insofar as the individual um, operates under some different set of laws that we can actually distinguish it as an individual and, and separate it off from the rest of reality. So the electron doesn't repel itself like it's even an electron repels other electrons of this, so they have the same charge and, and they have an electric um, electric field that repels, uh, they, they repel each other. Um, but um, an electron doesn't repel it, its own parts of itself because it's, uh, when you get, get to the level of the electron, it uh, is operating under different laws than electrons are operating um, with each other. So in, likewise, in the case of psychological reality, we have to assume that um, if there is something like a psychological individual, then the principles that, that govern the functioning of that individual have to be distinct from the principles that govern the relationships between individuals. Um, and so because of this, we can't, um, we can't take this sort of simplistic idea that um, the existence of social reality is itself enough to um, give us our, our sort of implicit sociology and thus our, our account of normativity. Um, we, can't, we can't simply um, derive the, the normativity and, and the distinction between the normal and the pathological from this uh, background sociology. Um, we have to have an, an actual account of um, of what the individual's uh, psychological reality consists in and what the relationship between individuals consists in uh, in order to have uh, a grounding for any notion of uh, normal and pathological or any other normative notion. Right, okay, so um, let's go on to the next section. Then this was a, a short section um, and relatively straightforward, I think. Um, the next one is much less straightforward um but uh yeah let's let's go on um um al would you like to read or uh if not i can i can uh read this one as well i could try sure uh can you hear me is my volume too low no it's good okay uh the problematic of uh reflexivity and individuation the difficulty expressed by psychosociology of situating individual reality and defining adaptation seems to stem from the same origin as the difficulty that plagues scientific thought when it seeks to define physical individuality. 
wanting to grasp the being structural without operation and operation without structure. It either leads to an absolute substantialism or to an absolute dynamism that does not leave room for relation within the individual being. Relation becomes inessential. Even Bergson, uh, who has made a remarkable effort to think the individual without allowing himself to be snared by a mental habit imported by, into psychology, by a spirit accustomed to treating other problems, has remained too close to pragmatism. Like pragmatism, he has privileged intra-individual dynamism at the expense of structural realities that are just as uh, intra-individual and important. It would be difficult to account for properly mental illness in Bergson's philosophy. According to the doctrine that we are expounding the psychological individual, like the uh, physical individual, is being constituted by the coherence of a domain of transactivity, in particular and as a direct consequence of this nature, it is impossible to constitute in the um, study of the individual two types of forces or behaviors. Example, normal behaviors and pathological behaviors, certainly not because behaviors would be identical to one another, but precisely because they are so different from one another to be able to constitute two types alone. According to the point of view in which we are situated, either an infinity of types can be constituted or one alone, but never two alone. The constitution of two types does nothing but express the bipolarity of normativity, essential to a psychological classification that conceals an implicit sociology and sociotechniques. In fact, as in every domain of transductivity, there is the psychological individual, the unfolding of a reality that is simultaneously continuous and multiple. Bergson has seized upon this characteristic in one of its dimensions, i.e. the temporal dimension, but instead of studying the characteristics of relation according to the order of simultaneity more deeply, he has remained prejudiced against speciality, no doubt due to the abuses of psychological atomism, and has remained content with opposing the characters of the superficial self to those of the deeper self. However, transactivity on the psychological level is expressed by the relation between the transductive order of the simultaneous and the transductive order of the successive. Without this relation, psychological reality would not be uh, distinct from uh, physical reality. In the psychological domain, the relation that, uh, that has the value of being is that of the simultaneous and successive, the different modalities of this relation are what constitute the domain of properly psychological transactivity, but they cannot be divided into kinds. They can only be hierarchized according to a given type of function. Ultimately, the very center of individuality, therefore, appears as reflexive self-consciousness. This expression being taken in its fullest sense, an unreflexive consciousness, one that is incapable of introducing uh, normativity derived from behavior to behavior itself.
would not effectuate this domain of transactivity that constitutes the psychological individual. Indeed, the characteristic polarity of teleological behavior already appears on the biological level, but then it lacks this reciprocity between the order of the simultaneous and the order of the successive that constitutes psychological reality. Moreover, we do not mean by this to assert that there is a radical distinction between the biological order and the psychological order by hypothesis alone, we are saying that pure biological reality would be constituted by the non-reciprocity of the relation between the domain of the simultaneous and that of the successive, whereas psychological reality is precisely the establishment of this reciprocity that can be called reflection. The pure living being indeed integrates its past experience into its present behavior, but it cannot carry out the inverse integration because it cannot introduce reflection due to which the present behavior already imagined in its results and analyzed in its structure is placed on the same ontological level as the past behavior. For the pure living being, there's a heterogeneity between experience and behavior. For the psychological individual, there's a relative and progressive homogeneity of these two realities. Instead of sinking into the past by becoming pure experience, the past behavior conserves the characteristics of interiority that make it a behavior. It conserves a certain coefficient of presence. Inversely, the present behavior consciously represented as that which will have consequences as effective as those that now constitute the real experience of the past is already an experience in advance. The possibility of foresight and the possibility of remembering converge because they share the same nature and have a single function to establish the reciprocity of the order of simultaneous and the order of success. Do I stop here? Uh, yeah, that's good. Thanks. Um, yeah, so let's, let me just scroll back up a bit. Um, so we're continuing with this problem of um, normativity in psychology and what it means to distinguish between a, a normal and a pathological state. And here we get Simon Doan's criticism of this uh, distinction. Um, so he, he argues that um, there are sort of uh, that psychological realities are too heterogeneous to um, to allow for distinguishing them into just two categories of normal and pathological. So you you either have to distinguish uh, infinitely many different types of uh, psychological reality, or you group them all in into one category. But there's no way to divide them up into just two categories. Um, so um, he also makes this comment about um, Bersan, um that uh, that he um, sort of privileges one side uh, of the dynamic reality uh, within the individual uh, over the structural side, and and 
um, whereas what we want to be able to do is to account for both dynamism and structure. Um, and there's this sort of, it's just sort of in passing, but I think it is interesting remark that um, uh, at the end of that first paragraph where he says it would be difficult to account for a properly mental illness in, in Bersan's philosophy. So for Bersan, um, mental reality is, or, or like the mental reality, properly speaking, is um, this sort of pure flow of time. And there's no, um, uh, it's only in connection with spatiality that um, you end up with some sort of pathology of, uh, of mental functioning. Uh, and, and so it's, it's hard to see how you, you can end up with um, uh, something like a, a mental illness or um, a pathology of the mind uh, in uh, a system where uh, the the mental or the psychological is sort of identified with the purely dynamic uh, and there's no structural reality of the mental. Uh, and yeah, so for, for Bersan, there's, um, he distinguishes between these sort of two layers of the, the superficial self, which is related to spatiality and the the external reality and adaptation to um, to external reality, uh, and then the deeper self, which um, has to do with this pure flow of time. Um, whereas for Simondon, what we instead need to be able to do is to um, have a to present some sort of transductive relationship between these two orders. Um, um, and um, so we, we need the, the order of simultaneity and the order of uh, succession. We need to have um, some sort of transductive relationship between the two. Uh, so, that, so that's sort of the, the problem that we're starting out from here at the beginning of, of this section. Uh, and then he introduces the question of reflexivity. Um, so there's something, um, there's something about um, psychological reality, which has this um, reflexive character. So um, psychological reality is uh, um, something that uh, sort of presents itself. It has this self-subsistent um, character, uh, or I shouldn't say self-subsistent, but um, it, it psychological reality involves um, some kind of self-presentation uh, or appearance before itself. Um, and here, Simon Don uh, distinguishes between the purely biological order and the, the psychological order. Um, uh, he distinguishes between the two without wanting to make this a, um, a substantial distinction. So there's no, um, there's no sort of, um, there, there isn't, uh, a psychological being that is sort of added on to the pre-existing uh, biological being. But at the same time, we can distinguish between um, the living being that, um, that, uh, that only is capable of incorporating the past into its present behavior. So uh, living beings in a wide variety of different parts of the, the hierarchy or the classification of, of living beings are capable of, of learning um, 
in some sense so that the past experience guides present behavior um, but what uh, living beings that don't have this psychological reality what they're not capable of is um, going in the other direction of taking present behavior as the or present uh, reality as the basis for future um, for future uh, experience so making anticipations of the future uh, and and so this is um, limited or 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 uh, the characteristic of uh, psychological reality as opposed to purely biological reality. Um, so it's only it's only at the level of the psychological individual that you can have um, some sort of um, homogenization of the past and the present. So the past and the present can both appear as um, uh, sort of distinct uh, as as appearing at the same ontological level um, so you can recall the past uh, and sort of bring it bring it to mind in the same way as something present um, and uh, this is what sort of underlies this capacity underlies the the capacity for anticipation or, or provision um, so um, um, there's there's a sort of um, capacity to make what is present appear as um, as the past of something to come uh, in the same way as, as we can make the past appear present in when we recall something uh, we can make the current present appear as the past of a, a future that hasn't um, happened yet and, and so we can we have this sort of homogenization capacity with respect to moments of time that um, the purely living being doesn't have. Uh, yeah, and so Angus has posted in the chat here a, a comment that it seems like there's an interiorization of exteriority and vice versa in psychological reality with regard to memory and foresight. Um, yeah, uh, we'll see actually, um, is it in this section or the next one? He actually uses the term dialectic for this. Um, relationship of interiority and exteriority, which he um, um, which is a bit surprising because he earlier um, in the introduction and, and other parts of this book, we've seen him uh, criticize um, a certain notion of the dialectic and distinguish uh, transductive reality from dialectics, uh, whereas here he he seems to take on the, this term dialectics um, as uh, um, as something uh, positive and not something to be criticized. So it's um, it's yeah, it's surprising. Uh, but we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, let me just get a drink here. Okay, so yeah, I'll read the next page or so. The domain of psychological individuality thus appears to be affected by a certain precariousness, for it is defined not only by the composition of a certain number of elements that constitutes a partially unstable idiosyncrasy, but also by self-constitutive dynamism that exists only to the extent that it supports itself and maintains itself in the being. An activity that constructs itself and conditions itself develops on a biological underpinning that provides a more or less abundant concordant or discordant idiosyncrasy. 
this self-constitutive character develops as a problematic without a solution on the level of personal idiosyncrasies. The character is not yet the individual because it is what poses problems but not what resolves them. If the solution of problems were given in experience, the individual would not exist. The individual exists the moment that a reflexive becoming conscious of the posed problems has allowed the particular being to introduce its idiosyncrasy and its activity, including that of its thought, into the solution. The proper characteristic of the solution on the level of the individual resides in the fact that the individual plays a double role, on the one hand as an element of the data, and on the other hand as an element of the solution. The individual intervenes twice in this problematic, and it is through this double role that it calls itself into question. If, as Vladimir Jankelevich says, every problem is essentially thanatological, this is because the axiomatic of every human problem can only appear to the extent that the individual exists i.e. establishes a finitude within itself that confers a recurrent circularity onto the problem of which it becomes conscious. If the individual were posited as eternal, none of the problems that appear to it could receive a solution because the problem could never be dissociated from the subjectivity that the individual confers on it by figuring among the data and the elements of the solution. The problem must be able to be freed from its inherence to individuality. And this requires that the individual only intervene provisionally in the question that it poses. A problem is a problem to the extent that it includes the individual, since it includes the individual doubly in its structure, although the individual seems to appropriate the problem. The individual and the problem surpass one another and sort of intersect according to a schema of mutual inheritance. The individual exists to the extent that it poses and resolves a problem but the problem only exists to the extent that it forces the individual to recognize its temporally and spatially limited nature. The individual is the being that joins within it and outside it an aspect of the simultaneous and an aspect of the successive. But in this act through which it brings a solution to an aspect of a problem, it becomes determined in order to make a, com a compatibility between these two orders occur. And it is localized and temporalized by becoming universalized. Every individual act is essentially ambiguous since it is at the point where there is a chiasmus of interiority and exteriority. It is at the limit between interiority and exteriority. Interiority is biological, exteriority is physical. The domain of psychological individuality is at the limit of physical reality and biological reality between the, na the natural and nature as an ambivalent relation with the value of being. The domain of psychological individuality therefore does not have its own space. It exists as a, su a super impression relative to the physical and biological domains. It is not inserted between them, properly speaking, it, but joins them and includes them partially, all while being situated on, in them. The nature of psychological individuality thus is essentially dialectical, since it only exists to the extent that it establishes a, com a compatibility that passes through itself between nature and the natural, between interiority and exteriority. Biological reality is anterior to psychological reality, but psychological reality takes the biological dynamism back up after being decentered with respect to it. The psychological detour is not an abandonment of life, but an act through which psychological reality becomes decentered relative to biological reality to be able to grasp in its problematic the rapport of the world and of the ego, the rapport of the physical and of the vital. Psychological reality unfolds as a transductive relation of the world and of the ego. The direct communication of the world and of the ego is not yet psychological. For psychological reality to appear, the implicit link between the world and the ego must be broken and then reconstructed 
solely through this conflict after two mediations that suppose one another and are mutually called into question in reflexive self-consciousness. Uh, yeah, and then another um, comment from Angus. Uh, it sounds like the individual has to be finite for the problem to overwhelm the individual and require a solution. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the idea is that um, uh, if we were to suppose something like an infinite individual, then that, uh, um, that individual would not... Um, would not have this uh, problematic character. Um, so the what is characteristic of uh, a finite individual is that um, it's a it's a problem for itself. So it, it has to define itself and uh, sort of um, put itself into question. Um, and and this is what um, Simon Dong here calls the circularity or the uh, self-constitutive character. Um, of psychological reality. Um, and so if you had a, an infinite individual, then there would be no um, problematic character of that individual for itself. And so it would not be a psychological individual. Um, it would be something completely different that we probably wouldn't be able to understand. So there's this notion here that, that Simon Dong introduces um, of the, the double role of the individual. So the individual um, on the one hand, is part uh, when, whenever we're faced with a problem um, uh, in the proper sense of the term, uh, the individual on the one hand is part of the um, the data of the problem or or the given aspect of the problem. So whenever you um, run into some sort of situation where that requires some uh, solution of a problem, part of what is given in that problem is what sort of uh, capacities and uh, preferences and uh, habits and so on that you you bring to the equation, um, but then at, at the same time the the individual is also um, part of the the solution of the problem. So um, it appears on the other side of the equation as well. So um, part of what you do when you solve a problem is precisely to make a choice about what kind of person or what kind of individual you're going to end up being um, so you you um, you know acquire new capacities or or you lose capacities that you had previously um, you acquire new habits or lose old ones and so on um, so you you become a, um, a a slightly different person um, just by solving a problem uh, uh, you're, you're a, a different individual than you were um, uh, before solving that problem. Um, and then so this idea of um, this circular nature of psychological reality or this um, self-constitutive character of psychological reality um, also brings up this notion of uh, the relationship, this dialectical relationship between interiority and exteriority. Um, so the individual um, through through solving a problem or um, um, through this uh, problem solution uh, has to do with um, bringing about a compatibility between internal and external uh, with here we think of the internal as biological um, and the the external as uh, as physical and then so the um, 
psychological reality would be sort of the boundary between the two. Uh, it would be the the way that each one um, affects the other and is sort of transferred into and and this um, psychological reality at the limit between biological and physical or between interior and exterior would itself um, be a relation uh, in the proper sense of the term for Simondon. So it's a relation that has ontological status. It's not um, it's not a, a purely external relation. Um, and then he brings up, and again, as I mentioned, he, he uses this term dialectical here, which um, we, we sort of would not expect him to use for his own um, theory or his own uh, proposals, because as I mentioned, he's criticized the dialectic before in this book. Uh, but here it has to do with the, the way that um, interiority and exteriority each sort of pass into each other. So um, psychological reality is only in this, um, in this uh, transition of exterior into interior and vice versa. So yeah, I think it's I think it's more than just communication. Um, um, uh, so we have we have communication in the sense that there is a um, uh, a sort of um, uh, input of signals from the physical reality into the biological being. Um, so we receive information through. Um, you know, vision and hearing and so on um, from the physical world surrounding us um, as as biological. Um, but um, I think what is going on here is more than just that, that it's pure communication. Um, we instead have something like a, um, a transition of interior into exterior and vice versa, which has to do with this um, making compatible uh, the different orders of temporality. Um, so we, uh, in in solving a problem, um, we we are um, we're making the simultaneous and the successive compatible. Um, and and so this goes back to from a couple paragraphs earlier where he talked about. Um, the way that psychological reality is what first makes possible um, foresight uh, by making time homogeneous. Um, so in the same way, um, we make the successive and the simultaneous compatible with each other when we solve a, a problem. And um, this making compatible um, is uh, a sort of um, exteriorization of the internal. Um, there's uh, like in in solving a problem, we at the same time um, transform ourselves. Uh, the individual that that um, solves a problem undergoes a transformation, and so becomes a, a, a somewhat different individual than it was previously. So this um, interior becomes exterior. Uh, and then likewise, um, the what was exterior, what was the given of the problem becomes transformed into the interior, becomes the solution to the problem. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, so there's a, a, a sort of reciprocal transformation and, and not just a, a communication. This section makes me think of the, uh, the discussion of the, the present in vital individuation with the moment of selective assimilation uh, in the cell um, with, I guess, the in- interior being something like the past or the successive and the exterior being the future or the simultaneous or something like that. And then there's this, I guess it's similar in that there's the moment between them that uh, causes them to correspond, um, which is the selective assimilation in the cell and reflexivity and psychological reality. Right. Yeah. So we have um, in, uh, we can also, so I would, I would, um, also point back to uh, the distinction that he makes between um, physical reality and uh, vital reality uh, with respect to temporality. So in the case of the uh, the crystal, for example, um, we have this um, strict correspondence between interior and the anterior. Um, so the crystal forms by layers and each layer is uh, 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 sort of deposited on top of the the last one, and um, the the interior of the crystal is strictly anterior in time to the the exterior of the crystal, and only the the outer layer that is forming at any given moment is fully present in that sense. Uh, and he, he points out that the crystal you can actually just hollow out the inside of the crystal, and the exterior will still grow in the same way. Um, and so the everything in inside the crystal is um, is uh, anterior in time in a, a, a sort of radical way in, in comparison with the the layer of the present. Whereas in living beings, um, the the living being is um, simultaneous to itself in a way that the crystal is not. Uh, <clears throat> So that um, the the living being um, is through its uh, reciprocal interaction of all of the different parts uh, of the of its body, it has uh, this simultaneity with itself. Uh, it it the interior of the living being is um, just as present as the external uh, surface of that living being, uh, and so there's. Um, uh, a different relationship between um, the topology of the living being and its time uh, relation, uh, as opposed to in in the case of physical reality. Um, here, in the case of psychological reality, I think it it um, it's a, a sort of um, reproducing the um, the same relationship at a higher level. Um, so uh, in the case of living reality, of living beings, um, they, they, um, they're simultaneous to themselves, um, but at the same time, the past of that living being becomes, uh, uh, becomes past by being incorporated into the present. Um, so it, it, um, the, the past experience of that living being um, makes it makes it uh 
learn and uh, changes its behavior um, but but it's only in psychological reality when you can um, actually recall the past and make the past present uh, that you have um, some sort of uh, um, uh, simultaneity of past and present if that makes sense um, uh, it, it makes the present it makes the past into something that can become present uh, and then it makes the present into something that can become past for the future to come uh, to come after um, and uh, so it, it has this um, um, simultaneity effect on uh, the moments of time as well okay uh, so let's go on to the next bit um, I think we're at Wentz results for the psyche, uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, yeah, I can read this. Um, Wentz results for the psyche, the necessity to unfold through mediations endowed with reciprocity. Since, in its domain, since its domain is that of relation but not of possession, it can only be constituted by what it constitutes. This reciprocity of the subject and the object appears in the individual problematic because what the object of the problem is for the, con for the consciousness that posits it, the subject of this consciousness is for the world that contains this object. This double situation is inherent to the opposition of realism and nominalism. However, this dialectical relation of the individual to the world is transductive because it unfolds a homogeneous and heterogeneous, consistent and continuous, but diversified world, a world which neither belongs to physical nature nor to life, but to this universe in the process of constitution that can be called mind, esprit. Yet this universe constructs the transductivity of life and of the physical world through knowledge and through action. The reciprocity of knowledge and of action allows this world to be constituted not just as a mixture, but as a veritable transductive relation. Everything that is constructed by the individual, everything that is apprehensible by the individual is homogeneous. Whatever the degree of spatial and temporal diversity that affects the elements of this constructed universe may be. All individual realities can be ordered in continuous series without radical heterogeneity. Every reality can be understood either as physical being, as vital gesture, or as individual activity. This third order of reality establishes a transductivity that partially and incompletely joins the preceding orders that are commensurate with the existence of psychological individuals. The inclusion of the elements of the first two orders in the third is the work of the individual and expresses the individual. Nevertheless, this inclusion is never complete because it requires the existence of physical and biological underpinnings, just as there cannot be an entirely biological world, there cannot be an entirely psychological world. Psychological individual could also appear to belong to a psychological world, but here an illusion arising from an overly facile analogy must be prevented. Properly speaking, arising from an over... Oops, Properly speaking, a psychological world within which, within which individuals would be distinguished and defined after the fact does not exist. The psychological world is constituted by the relation of psychological individuals. In this case, the individuals are anterior to the world and are constituted based on non-psychological worlds. 
the relation of the physical and biological worlds to the psychological world passes through the individual. The psychological world must be called the trans-individual universe rather than the psychological world, since the latter does not have an independent existence. For example, culture is not a reality that subsists of itself. It only exists to the extent that cultural monuments and expressions are reactualized by individuals and included by them as bearers of significations. What can be transmitted is nothing but the universality of a problematic, which is in fact the universality of an individual situation created through space and time. Yet the psychological world exists to the extent that each individual finds before it a series of mental schemata and of behaviors already incorporated in culture that compel the individual to pose its particular problems according to a normativity previously elaborated by other individuals. The psychological individual must choose among the values and behaviors from which it receives examples. But not everything is given in culture, and we must distinguish between culture and trans-individual reality. Culture is neutral in a certain sense. It has to be polarized by the subject that calls itself into question. On the contrary, there is, in the, in, in the trans-individual relation, the requirement of the subject to be called into question by himself. Uh, because this calling into question is already begun by others. The decentering of the subject relative to himself is carried out in part by others in the inner individual relation. However, it should be noted that the inner individual relation can obscure the trans individual relation to the extent that a purely functional mediation is made available as an easy option that avoids the veritable position of the problem of the individual by the individual himself. The inner individual relation can remain a simple rapport and avoid reflexivity. Pascal has felt and noted quite vividly the antagonism between diversion and the reflexive consciousness of the problem of the individual. To the extent that the inner individual relation offers a prior validation of the ego grasped as a persona through the functional representation that others have formed of it, this relation avoids the acuteness of the calling into question of oneself by oneself. Uh, should I stop there? Uh, yeah, I think this is like a multi-page paragraph, so let's stop there. I actually think there are, are a lot of compatibilities with Heidegger here, at least in the idea of like uh, kind of authentic possibilities being determined by facticity and the inner individual calling or covering up uh, the possible trans-individual relation yeah uh, i think i think um heidegger is not really um uh a sort of explicit reference point for simon Don, um in general uh I, I don't think he um cites him well simon Don doesn't really cite his, his sources um in general very much um but heidegger i think he mentions in the book on uh, technical objects at some point, but um, I don't recall him mentioning Heidegger anywhere else. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think we can. I think it's fair to draw um, analogies between the two. Uh, in yeah, definitely with relation to finitude, um, as we saw in the last paragraph. Um, and some some notion of authenticity um, 
that that has to do with something um, that goes beyond the individual as an already individuated being. Um, I think I think those are fair points of, of comparison. Uh, one translation note on this bit here um, is that um, so in the uh, right near the bottom of three eleven um, where the the translation says mind um, so it says um, a world that neither belongs to physical nature nor to life but to this universe in the process of constitution that could be called mind um, and then he put the the French word here esprit. Um, I think here it would be better to translate this as spirit rather than mind. I think uh, Simon Do is um, explicitly calling back to Hegel here um, and this notion of um, uh, this reality, this domain of reality that we can call spirit um, as something that is distinct from uh, purely psychological reality of an individual. Um, and also from physical reality, it's a, a sort of distinct layer of reality um, that that uh, surpasses any individual's um, uh, psychological reality. Um, and I think, you know, and especially because we we have seen this term dialectics come up or dialectical relation uh, come up in in these last couple paragraphs. I think the reference to Hegel is especially um, likely here i think uh i think that's what he has in mind or, or what he's um sort of building off of in this paragraph um and then maybe a, another terminological question not, not a translation but um when when simon don here talks about uh again near the bottom of 311 uh, maybe 10 lines up or so um he he talks about the opposition of realism and nominalism um so this has to do with um, um, like these terms come from medieval philosophy, um, and and they have to do with the reality of universals. Um, and so, realism means the position that holds that um, universals have a, a independent existence. So there's something like um, the the form of the horse or the form of man or something like that, um, which has an independent existence. Whereas nominalism holds that um, universals exist only um, uh, insofar as uh, as their names. Uh, so we have a name for horse horses uh, or a name for um, dogs or whatever, um, and it's only um, it's only in uh, in those names that something like a universal exists. Um, so they have they have a purely linguistic. Um, Right, but that bit about um, um, realism and nominalism is, is a bit obscure. He, he only sort of uh, mentions in passing this opposition between realism and nominalism, and he doesn't really develop um, what the connection is with psychological reality. Um, so yeah, that's uh, kind of an obscure point, I think, uh, to that. Um, yeah, hoarseness is the wetness of all horse. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of um, there's all kinds of um, subtleties having to do with like um, the different positions. Like, uh, is there such a thing as the essence of a of 
horse or um, is that distinct from like the uh, the horse as such and, and so on? Like, yeah, medieval philosophy is always very subtle and um, difficult to pin down. Um, right. Uh, but yeah, so here we have um, the the idea that um, there's no psychological world, properly speaking, or um, or what we call the psychological world, in opposition to the the biological world, um, is uh, is a sort of um, um, it, it's a sort of uh, illusion to talk about the psychological world. Uh, there's there's only um, it's only through the individual that there is something like a psychological world, this this realm of spirit. Um, so there's only um, um, there's only something like culture, um, insofar as uh, different uh, whatever monuments or or written books or or whatever other cultural artifacts um, have a a place in the life of individuals uh, that they have some sort of cultural value. Um, so there's only um, only a psychological world insofar as individuals um, sort of constitute that world, um, as opposed to in the case of the biological worlds, the 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 world and the biological individual are are. Um, uh, Sort of correlated realities that appear at the same level of uh, uh, at the same um, stage of the process of individuation, whereas in the case of psych the psychological world, it's something that is um, uh, dependent on the already existing psychological individual. I had a, a question about that um, idea. It seems like the like psychological reality exists at the border between the biological and the physical, but I guess what's not clear to me is what existence the cultural world has before it is taken up by the individual. It's presumably like it can be taken up in part by some people and not by others. I, I don't know if it would be considered biological or physical for Simon Don before it's taken up. I think the way that, or, or how I would understand it, is that um, for each given individual, um, the the psychological world appear, or the cultural sphere, or or spirit, or whichever term we want to use, um, appears as something given to that individual. So um, when when an individual is born and and grows up, they always grow up in uh, a certain society with its own culture and everything. Um, so the cultural reality already exists uh, um, in, in its own uh, sort of ontological register, I guess we can say. Um, but that existence only happens through the, the, um, the, um, the operation of psychological individuals. Um, so it's not, there isn't um, a temporal, um, uh, distinction between like one uh, moment where there would be um, a psychological individual uh, without a cultural reality uh, and then uh, a second moment where cultural reality would exist. Um, it's it's uh, at each moment you have both, but um, uh, 
uh, it's only um, there, there's like a, an ontological dependence from uh, of the psychological world on the psychological individual. And so again, this is um, something that this is a contrast with the um, biological reality where the world and the, the individual are uh, both appearing at the same time. They both appear through the same process of individuation um, with the, the, the biological world or the environment of a, an organism um, being the, the sort of leftover of the process of individuation through which that individual uh, arises. Um, right, and, th and then this, this is sort of what he, what Simon Don, um gets at in the, the next paragraph where he talks about how um, the individual um, comes to the psychological world um, as a sort of um, uh, repertoire of um, uh, already elaborated normative, normative um, uh, already elaborated normativity. Um, so uh, the individual, as it uh, is born and, and grows up, um, is already surrounded by judgments of what is normal and pathological, or what is um, valuable or uh, not valuable, or um, desirable and not desirable, and so on. Um, there's all these normative judgments that are, are already um, uh, are already present uh, for before the the um, individual uh, is able to even you know make decisions or or make judgments about what uh, what preferences they have and so on. Uh, so the the individual. Um, uh, sort of comes into the world as a world that already has this uh, psychological valence or this normative valence to it. Uh, and uh, the individual has to sort of select out of this existing repertoire of, uh, of normativity, um, which norms uh, or which um, behaviors to, to um, adopt and take on. Uh, so there's only um, there's only uh, a finite set of um, norms that you can um, adopt or that you can live up to. You can only do so much in a finite lifespan, uh, and and so we um, we're sort of forced to select from this repertoire of uh, uh, of all these given norms. Uh, and a question from Angus, does the inter-individual have psychological reality for Simondon or is it something else? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, I think if we want to maintain that distinction that he made um, a long time ago now, but where he talks about um, uh, the inter-individual as distinct from the trans-individual, um, I think he would not want to um, not want to say that the inter-individual has psychological reality, um, so that um, it's only at the level of the trans-individual that there's something like um, uh, um, hmm. well, I don't want to say exactly a psychological reality, but psychological reality sort of is continuous with. Um, uh, the trans-individual reality, um, I guess, is, is the way I would put it. Um, there is a, um, as we've seen in a few previous sections, um, the individual 
is not uh, at the level of the psycholo psychological individual. Uh, it's not capable of resolving all of the problems uh, that it faces on its own. Uh, it's only through association with the collective that um, that these problems can be resolved. But I think that collective is always at the level uh, or always takes the form of the trans individual rather than the inter individual. Um, so I think uh, I think we would have to um, regard inter individual uh, connections as um, something distinct uh, from psychological reality. Uh, I think, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, something like behaviors. Um, yeah, so when he talks about inter-individual reality, um, he's thinking, I think, of um, something like the example that he gave in, in that passage from uh, uh, a long time back, I think in the, in the part on vital individuation. Um, he, he um he mentions um exchange as a sort of instance of inter-individual um relationship so um you have one uh, already constituted individual that has certain preferences and has certain um possessions uh and then you have another individual that has different preferences or different possessions and they exchange their possessions with each other um to maximize each other's um, for each of them to maximize their preferences. Um, and, uh, and so this is um, uh, a relationship in which the, the two individuals are already constituted. They already have their, their preferences set uh, and there's no um, problem solving um, aspects to this uh, relationship. There, there's no, um, there's no um, sort of calling into question of the being of these individuals. Uh, so this is um, uh, like a, a type of um, uh, paradigm case for inter-individual relationships. So something, it's some sort of um, connection between already constituted individuals that doesn't call into question the being of the... Um, okay, so let's, let's um, go on to the next bit. Uh, so I think we're right near the top of 313. Um, let's see. Yeah, this is a long long paragraph um i can read this i can read this part where did we leave off i think um i think we're at on the contrary is that right uh uh yeah okay on the contrary the veritable trans individual relation only begins beyond solitude it is constituted by the individual who called himself into question and not by the convergent sum of inter-individual rapports. Pascal discovers trans-individuality in a reciprocal relation with Christ. I have shed my blood for thee, Christ said, and the man who has managed to remain alone understands that Christ is in agony until the end of time. There must be no sleeping during that time, Pascal said. The veritable individual is one who has traversed solitude. What the individual discovers beyond solitude is the presence of a trans-individual relation. The individual finds the universality of relation at the end of the trial that is imposed on him, and this trial is one of isolation. We believe that this reality is independent of any religious context, or rather it is anterior to any religious context and is in fact the common basis for all religious forces when it is translated into religion. The source of all religions is not society, as certain sociological thoughts have wanted to show but the trans-individual. 
This force is socialized, institutionalized only afterwards. It is not social in its essence. Nietzsche shows Zarathustra taking, taking refuge in his cave at the top of the mountains to find solitude, which allows him to foresee the enigma of the universe and to speak to the sun. He isolates himself from other men to the point of being able to say, you great star, what would your happiness be had you not known those for whom you shine? The trans-individual relation of that of Zarathustra to his disciples or that of Zarathustra to the tightrope walker who lies broken on the ground in front of him and who has been abandoned by the crowd. The crowd only considered the funambulist in terms of his function. It abandons him when he ceases to perform his function after his death. On the contrary, Zarathustra feels himself to be the man's brother, and he carries off his corpse to give him a proper burial. It is with solitude in this presence of Zarathustra to a dead friend abandoned by the crowd that the trial of trans-individuality trans begins. What Nietzsche describes as the event of wanting to climb onto his own shoulders is the act of every man who undergoes the trial of solitude to discover trans-individuality. However, Zarathustra does not discover a creator god in his solitude, but the pantheistic presence of a world submitted to eternal return. Zarathustra dying holds the earth in his arms. The trial is thus anterior to the discovery of the trans-individual, or at the very least anterior to the discovery of all the trans-individual. The example of Nietzsche's Zarathustra is invaluable, for it shows that the trial itself is often guided and initiated by the flash of an exceptional event that makes man conscious of his destiny and leads him to feel the necessity of the trial. If Zarathustra hadn't felt this absolute and profound fraternity with the tightrope walker, he would not have left the village to seek refuge in the cave at the top of the mountain. A first encounter between the individual and trans-individual reality is necessary. And if this encounter can only be accept, sorry, and this encounter can only be an exceptional situation that externally presents the aspects of a revelation. But in fact, the trans individual is self-constitutive, and Pascal's phrase, you would not seek me if you had not had not found me. If it accounts for the role of the individual's activity in the discovery of the trans individual, seems to presuppose the transcendent existence of a being in which the origin of all trans individuality resides. Neither the idea of imminence nor the idea of transcendence can account completely for the characteristics of the trans-individual with respect to the psychological individual. Transcendence or imminence are indeed defined and determined before the moment that the individual becomes one of the terms of the relation into which it is integrated and whose other term was already given. However, if, this is admit, if it is admitted that the trans-individual is self-constitutive, it will be seen that the schema of transcendence or the schema of imminence only account for this self-constitution through their simultaneous and reciprocal position. Each moment of self-constitution involves the definition of the rapport between the individual and the trans-individual as that which surpasses the individual by extending it. The trans-individual trans is not exterior to the individual and yet becomes detached from the individual to a certain extent. Furthermore, this transcendence that takes root in interiority or rather at the limit of interiority and exteriority, does not bring about a dimension of exteriority, but a dimension of excess relative to the individual. The fact that the trial of transindividuality was able to be interpreted sometimes as a recourse to a superior and exterior force, and sometimes as a deepening of interiority, according to Augustine's formulas, interredi in interiori homine habitat veritas, return to yourself, truth resides in everyone, or even, Deus interior intimo meo, Deus superior superimo meo. God is higher than my highest and more interior than my innermost self. 
shows that at the very start, this fundamental ambiguity exists. The trans individual is neither exterior nor superior. It characterizes the true relation between every exteriority and every interiority relative to the individual. Perhaps the dialectical formula according to which man must go from the exterior to the interior and from the interior to the, to the superior could also articulate the passage from interiority to exteriority prior to the access to superior things. For it is in the, the relation between exteriority and interiority that the starting point of trans-individuality is constant. Uh, okay, so this was a sort of a long passage um, with um, a lot of different things going on here. Um, so we have to start with um, this idea that the, which is a sort of a, a paradoxical idea, but um, the idea that our access to the trans individual comes through solitude, or um, it, uh, as, as Simon puts it here, the, the veritable trans individual relation only begins beyond solitude. So this, um, this is related to what I was talking about a, a little while ago about distinguishing the trans individual from the inter-individual. Um, so even though the trans individual is a kind of collective reality, it's always a reality that um, it's, it's not the reality of like a group of people um, just sort of coming together and uh, um, like averaging over the sum of those people or something like that. Um, it's uh, it's um, a kind of reality that um, we only have access to through this solitude or, or this what uh, he also calls the trial. Um, so there, there's a, a sort of um, suffering that we have to undergo in order to uh, gain access to the trans individual. It's not something that is sort of uh, easily um, achieved. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think it is fair to make a, a comparison here again with, with Heidegger um, that um, um, there's this uh, individualizing nature of anxiety. Um, so anxiety serves as the um, um, the uh, determination that um, allows for something like authenticity to be possible. Um, it's through anxiety that the uh, that Dasein um, uh, is given to itself as a, a problem. Um, um, yeah, so I think we can make that comparison here. Um, and I think, um, yeah, trans-individual reality um, being something that we access through solitude, um, I think is uh, sort of a, a key moment that is maybe easy to overlook when when Simonon talks about, um, like, as we saw in, in previous sections, he sometimes talks about how um, the, uh, the individual, uh, the psychological individual can't solve all its own problems and it has to sort of go to the level of the collective, um, but it, it's, sort of a subtle um, meaning of, of or, or what exactly he means when he says that um, certain problems can only be solved at the level of the collective uh, is a kind of subtle point because here we only access the collective through solitude. Um, so there's um, uh, like if um, emotion is, is something, if emotion as opposed to affectivity is something that is only um, um, if there's only, um, uh, sorry, if emotion as opposed to affectivity is something that can only be uh, 
brought about at the level of the collective, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the level of the collective consists of like a group of people or something like that. Um, it has to do with uh, um, the way that the um, access to the collective is through solitude. Uh, so emotion might also at the same time be something that we experience in solitude as opposed to affectivity that we might um, we might also experience in groups. Um, so it, it can take on this sort of um, paradoxical uh, form here. Um, and then we have these um, sort of sketches of uh, a couple of authors that um, that talk about this, um, some, what Simondon um, identifies as uh, trans-individual reality. Uh, so Pascal and Nietzsche as the the sort of key reference <clears throat> key reference points here. Um, so, of course, for for Pascal, it's um, it's uh, in reference to um, a sort of transcendent uh, divinity. Um, so for Pascal, is a, a, a transcendent God who um, calls the individual into question. Um, and um, uh, whereas for, for Nietzsche, the relation is to some sort of um, quasi-pantheistic um, uh, uh, understanding of the world's through eternal return. Um, and uh, you know what exactly that eternal return means is of course like a pretty um a pretty uh debated point in Nietzsche scholarship but um it seems to involve some kind of um experience of the world as uh um uh as having this um sort of divine quality to it um uh, so we in this experience of the eternal return we um, we are no longer um, sort of uh, separate from the world as something uh, distinct from us, but we have this sort of unification with the world, um, and the world appears to us as something uh, divine or as having the divine in it. Um, yeah, it's it allows you to will the past. Um, I mean, I, my sort of amateur um, understanding of it is is that um, when you have um, this grasp of uh, the sort of chain of determination um, that everything that led up to this moment uh, um, it was necessary that there was no um, sort of uh, role of freedom uh, in in leading up to this moment then you um, you have this sort of experience of affirmation of everything in the past, even all the, uh, you know, humiliations that you went through and suffering and everything um, in your life that you maybe in other moments would like to forget or wish had never happened and, and so on. Um, in in this moment of eternal return, you um, experience everything as um, uh, all of those moments as as part of this necessary chain that leads up to the present. And so that's impossible for you to will anything other than what actually happened um, because those those moments are are what makes that make your will what it is now. Um, and uh, 
so it's I think connected with Spinoza's um, idea of the um, amor fati, the love of fate, or um, um, but anyway, that's maybe a bit of an aside. Um, but here in this context, um, I think um, for Simon Don, what what Nietzsche is um, presenting with this experience of the eternal return is something. Um, um, something divine appearing within uh, the individual. Um, so uh, Pascal and Nietzsche are, are sort of um, serving as the two um, opposite poles here, where for Pascal, the, uh, um, this experience or this trial is something that happens through um, a transcendent God, um, whereas for Nietzsche, there's this sort of imminent divine principle that appears within uh, human reality. Um, that that brings about this trial by solitude. Um, but uh, in each case, what um, what Simondon argues here is that what they're, these two authors are talking about, the, the reality behind what they're discussing is the trans-individual reality. And uh, so Simondon argues that this trans-individual reality is what underlies religion. Uh, it, it's not itself something religious, but um, it's uh, the trans-individual reality is what religions are sort of based on. And I think he's here um, criticizing um, Durkheim and the idea that the, um, uh, the basis of religion is a sort of um, um, mythologized version of the social order um, as something that would already be constituted uh, and so the trans-individual reality is, is not something that is already already individuated and constituted and, and given. It's something that um, uh, has to be brought about through an individuation. Uh, and, and so Simon Do argues that this is actually more fundamental than the social. Uh, right. And, and so this, this trans-individual reality is something that, um, that goes beyond the individual. Um, but at the same time, it's... Um, it does so by extending the individual. So it's only um, it, trans-individual reality is not something external to the individual in the in the way that we can um, picture uh, in in the the transcendence picture, where you would have um, uh, uh, a divinity outside of me um, sort of brings about this experience of the trans-individual reality. Um, so in in this picture. There, we're already starting from an individual. The the God is supposed to be an individual, um, and we we don't have something like a, a genesis of the individual. Um, and then likewise, if we start from the uh, imminence picture, we we end up with um, a picture of trans individual reality or, or this experience of the trans individual as something that um, that is uh, arising from within the already constituted reality of the individual. Um, and so we, again, don't end up with a, a genetic account of this trans-individual reality. Uh, so what we are looking for is an understanding of uh, trans-individual reality that would, um, that would uh, give a genetic account or would um, present the process of individuation through which uh, 
we come to uh, have this experience of the trans individual. And then he again references um, the dialectical formula here on right at the top of 315. Um, so, it, and, and again, it's in the context of this relationship between exterior and interior. Um, so there's, um, um, it, some, somehow this relationship between uh, exterior and interior, um, which is what psychological reality consists in, is at the same time, uh, it sort of points beyond itself to trans individual reality. Um, there's, there's a sort of reciprocity or um, uh, double movement of the exterior to the interior and the interior to the exterior, um, which at the same time points beyond itself to the trans individual reality. Um, so I think this is sort of the what he means when he talks about how, um, where is that, a little bit earlier on 314, when he says that the, the trans individual um, surpasses the individual by extending it. Um, so the trans individual reality is, is not something uh, distinct from the, in the individual psychological reality. It's something that um, the, the individual psychological reality already points towards the, psych, the, the trans individual reality. Um, let's see, where are we? Uh, I don't think we have time to finish this section today. Uh, we have like another couple pages. So I would suggest that we stop here for today and um, we'll pick up uh, from 3.15 next time. So thank you everyone, uh, a small group today, but um, yeah, this is a, one of the key parts of this book, I think uh, of, of this, uh, uh, this part on, um, on psychological reality. I think this is sort of the key moment of that whole part.